For our next story, we're going to take you to an auto repair shop. So I had to get my car repaired and I go to this car repair shop. That's David Doniger. In the 1980s, he was an attorney with the National Resource Defense Council. And he was trying to get federal action on a big issue that was only getting bigger, the ozone hole. And I call my office and I ask if I have any messages. Yes, so-and-so is trying to reach you urgently. I call this person and the person says, you're not gonna believe what I just heard. I was just in a cabinet meeting, you know, with, the, with, with my leadership. And Donald Hodel is saying, we shouldn't have an ozone treaty. We should tell people to protect themselves. We should have a personal protection policy. And I said, well, what does that mean? And the person says, it means wear hats and sunglasses. So I'm in this auto repair shop and, and asking them in the office, can I use your phone again? I called reporters for the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. And I told them the story and they said, well, who can we confirm this with? We can't go by your say-so. And out of desperation, because I knew I couldn't give my source away at EPA, out of desperation, I said, well, call the Interior Department and ask for the secretary and ask if they'll confirm it. And half an hour later, the, the reporters call back and say, you're not going to believe this. They confirm it. What is your comment? I did a quick cost-benefit analysis. I said, the industry says it'll cost a billion dollars over 10 years to phase these chemicals down. And if you have to buy everybody a hat and two bottles of sunscreen and a pair of sunglasses every year, and I did the math and it came out to $10 billion. The chemicals David's referring to are CFCs, or chlorofluorocarbons. They were commonly found in everyday aerosol items like hairspray, as well as refrigerants and foams. In the 1970s, two scientists discovered that when CFCs were released into the stratosphere, the sun split them apart. This caused a reaction that destroyed the ozone layer. It also meant that the sun's harsh UV rays could shine harder on the Earth's surface, hence the sunscreen reference. So you would end up with a weaker ozone shield high above our heads, letting in more dangerous ultraviolet radiation that would cause skin cancer, damage to plants, and many other bad consequences. The first reaction of the industry was denial, and that denial phase carried through uh, really into the early 80s. David says some of his NRDC colleagues helped publicize the findings. And the American public, they were concerned. This made TV news, it made uh, all the big papers, because it was one of the first times that we came to a realization that the chemicals we use, the things we're doing could really alter the, the global atmosphere. There was a very strong consumer reaction right away. People saying, a collective, ugh, you know, I don't need hairspray or underarm deodorant that bad in this form anyway. And consumers shifted very quickly to roll-ons and pump sprays. 
some companies reacted quickly to offer those products, but the consumer trend was really sharp. And the sales of CFCs for aerosols just plummeted. Now, keep in mind, this is the 1970s, the environmental decade. And as you heard in our first segment, Ronald Reagan approached environmental protection a little, well, let's just call it differently. So I asked David how the Reagan administration of the 80s tackled the issue of CFCs. The very last thing that the Carter administration did was issue a finding that the CFC use still going on after the aerosol market more or less dried up. The use for refrigeration, the use for solvents and foams, the leakage from that set of uses was also a threat to the ozone layer. That, that finding triggered a requirement under the Clean Air Act to follow up with further restrictions. Well, that's when Reagan came in. News now makes its projection for the presidency. Reagan is our projected winner. Ronald Wilson Reagan of California, a sports announcer, a and film actor. In the first three years, the EPA was run by Ann Gorsuch Burford. The other big name from the Interior Department was James Watt. You might remember Jay Turner talking about Burford earlier in the show. She was forced to resign in 1983 after a scandal over mismanagement. In her place, Reagan brought back William Ruckelshaus, who ran the EPA under Nixon. Now, uh, my organization, NRDC, knew that after the Carter administration had made this finding of endangerment, we could sue the agency to force action to be taken. That's the way the Clean Air Act works. It gives citizens groups the authority to go to court to force the agency to do things that are required. But we didn't want to take that lawsuit in the first few years because we were afraid that uh, the first Reagan EPA administrator, Ann Gorsuch, would just revoke the finding of danger. Uh, so we waited. And when Bill Ruckelshaus came in, we knew him to be a man of honor and principle and science-driven. And we knew that he wouldn't uh, react to a lawsuit by revoking the scientific finding. So that's when we brought the lawsuit. By this time, though, David says public interest in the issue was waning. People weren't necessarily thinking about what chemicals went into their refrigerators. What happened is, I got a call one day, soon after we filed the lawsuit, from someone in the agency, a career staffer, and he said, you don't know me. And it's true, I didn't know who he was. I'm thinking, who is this guy? He said, if you push this lawsuit, you're gonna win but then you'll get the wrong answer. You'll be able to force a decision from the agency, but you'll get the wrong answer. I need two years, he said, to beef up the science uh, of the alternatives, the science of the effects. It was a very grandiose plan. I'll do this in a series of workshops with industry and with you, and we'll, we will rebuild the support for action on this. And now, he wasn't named Deep Throat, was he? No, his name was John Hoffman, but he was one of the most influential people at EPA. And uh, so we agreed to a settlement agreement that gave the agency two years to work on these studies and these and the outreach and the engagement. 
And I remember a meeting in Vienna, Virginia, where representatives of the DuPont company, which was the biggest maker of CFCs, came into that meeting and they said, we want to show you in all earnestness and honesty that there are no alternatives. And one by one, they said, we have this one and that one, and these would work, but they're more expensive than the CFCs. So there's no answer. And a light bulb went off in my head. And I said to them, you mean, if the supply of the CFCs was restricted so that their price went up, these other chemicals would be competitive? And they all looked a little dumbfounded. I'm still not quite sure whether uh, I was being set up to reach that conclusion or whether, you know, they'd never thought of it themselves, but it was the right answer. Uh, in 1986, at one of these conferences that EPA had organized, they made me the, one of two keynote speakers, the other one being from the industry. And the guy from the industry spoke first, and he said, we have concluded that we need to limit how much more of these chemicals we make. And I gave a presentation in which I said, we need to phase these chemicals out. And if we were really just following the science, we'd do it right away. But I realized that there's a need for a transition. So I propose that we phase them out completely over a 10-year period. By that time, um, there was a new EPA administrator named Lee Thomas, who was in the Ruckelshaus mold. He was He's a, a straight shooter. He decided that a 95% phase-out over 10 years should be the U.S. policy going into a new set of international negotiations about these chemicals. And it was at about that time that the ozone hole was discovered. The ozone hole is the name for a huge drop in the levels of ozone in the stratosphere over Antarctica that shows up at the end of the long winter, southern winter, which ends in September. And the sunlight peaks up over the horizon, and suddenly the ozone levels plummet. How was this discovered? Well, there was a research station on Antarctica with a device that looked up and measured the ozone concentration from the ground up. And for a couple of years, they found these anomalous low readings in uh, September when the sun came up and they didn't know what to make of it. So they waited to the next year to make sure it happened again. And finally, they published their results in, in Nature magazine. And then it turned out that folks at NASA have a satellite that's been circulating over the whole world, but including Antarctica. And they had 10 years or more of records of the ozone layer concentrations. And they went back into their files and sure enough, they found evidence that this ozone hole had opened in the late 1970s and was growing, growing, growing. Now, I don't need to tell you that the only penguins we have here in the United States 
are in zoos and, well, I guess Batman comics. What happens at the South Pole can seem like a world away from the hustle and bustle of Washington, D.C. But the fact is, the ozone hole required a global solution. There was uh, awareness that this was an international, global problem. So there was a, an effort to get negotiations going among countries. Mostly it was between the industrial countries, because the developing countries at that time didn't make these chemicals. So mostly it was between the U.S., the Europeans, the Scandinavians, the Canadians, and the Japanese were the other major manufacturers. So the U.S., Japan, Europe were the manufacturers, and the other developed countries uh, were concerned about this. With so many players, it's not surprising that it was a struggle to develop an international agreement to limit the use of CFCs. David says the 1985 discovery of the ozone hole gave negotiators a boost. It helped set the stage for what many people see as one of the biggest environmental success stories of the 20th century, the Montreal Protocol. It was really, um, uh, it was dramatic. What they got in Montreal was a 50% phase down over 10 years. My initial reaction, you know, it's great, there's an agreement, but my initial reaction was, this isn't going to do the job. And I said to the, a few weeks later to the same guy, John Hoffman, I said, I'm, I'm concerned that, you know, this is a halfway measure and we're gonna get stuck here. He said, you're wrong, David. In three years, we will be back at the negotiating table and we will ramp this up to a full phase out. And he turned out to be right. Uh, that the momentum was building to do more. Now, EPA aside, I can't imagine Ronald Reagan taking the lead on what really required international leadership, did he? This is an interesting part of the story. So Lee Thomas, the head of the EPA, and George Shultz, who was the Secretary of State, worked together on this. They both took this problem very seriously, and they worked this negotiating position through, I referred to earlier, where Lee Thomas said, our position should be a 95% uh, phase out over 10 years. And Schultz and, and, and Thomas got this adopted as the U.S. Uh, negotiating policy, largely because the other agencies didn't care or weren't paying attention. Then the industry became alarmed. They were, again, I told you, they were willing to limit how fast things grew, but some of them were willing to put a freeze on the emission, on the, on the production, but they weren't ready to sign up for a full phase out. So they went shopping in the Reagan administration for some other agency to raise issues. And they found their champion in Donald Hodel. If you need a refresher, Donald Hodel was the Secretary of the Interior whom David referred to earlier. You know, the just wear sunglasses guy. It turned out though, that Reagan took sun damage pretty seriously. He'd had experience with skin cancer. And some historians think that experience motivated Reagan to prioritize the issue. I asked David if he thinks Reagan weighed in on the issue personally. I don't know. I think that, um he may well have signaled that he got it. He, you know, he understood this problem. 
And so anyway, uh, you know, he backed Schultz. There's another little incident that I will report that at one point there was a cabinet meeting about this presided over by Ed Meese, who was the attorney general and very close to Reagan. This is where our lawsuit came in because he said that he was in favor of pursuing the international treaty. Why? Because if we didn't have a treaty, the NRDC would win this lawsuit and would force very severe restrictions on U.S. companies. And then the European and Japanese companies would have an advantage. So he favored a treaty in order to have everybody... On the same playing field. The same playing field. Exactly right. You'll recall the Montreal Protocol only went some of the way toward a full phase-out of CFCs. David's colleagues insisted it was only a matter of time until science proved the connection between CFCs and the ozone hole. That discovery was already happening, and it was made in Antarctica in 1986 by a team led by Susan Solomon, who was a researcher with the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Immediately, we had the basis to come back and force further action. So we actually brought another lawsuit saying that the halfway measure wasn't enough. And so we, we, we replayed the same dynamics where the U.S. under the tail end of Reagan and during the Bush administration would still have the same interest in having a global solution. These efforts resulted in new changes to the Montreal Protocol, which has been revised several times. And according to a 2013 New York Times article, if the Montreal Protocol had not halted production of CFCs, the planet would be warming at an even faster rate. So I asked David what he's learned about fighting climate change from his effort to stop the spread of the ozone hole. I think the story tells you that we can solve global environmental threats like climate change. It also tells you that the resistance of the industry in question is very powerful and the fossil fuel industries are much bigger than the chemical companies that made these refrigerants. And they um, learned some important lessons about obstruction from the Montreal experience. They learned that from their point of view, the chemicals industry gave in too easy. They learned some obstructive techniques that they have applied with the great effect in the climate of treaty negotiations. They were in the process during the Reagan administration, but even more so uh, in the years since of taking over the Republican Party so that the one whole party is uh, opposed to environmental protection, especially climate protection. In the 70s, that wasn't so. The outcry was bipartisan. But what's happened, you know, it's a symptom of our broader political realignment where people have sorted themselves into partisan camps as individuals. And then uh, politicians have sorted themselves into partisan camps. The funding from the oil and coal and gas industries, but primarily oil and gas for um, right-wing political causes is very, very strong. And they invested heavily in denialism and in confusion. 
So if you were to offer one optimistic <laughs> lesson to take away from the saga of CFCs, what would that be? Well, maybe I'd say two things. One is the industry cried uh, wolf that the economy would come to a halt. You know, you wouldn't be able to keep food cold. You wouldn't be able to keep medicines cold in the in, in the distribution chain. Uh, the economy would fall apart if anything was done to these precious CFCs. And it turned out that when they turned the corner on this, they could develop the substitutes. Most people don't know that there's a different chemical in their air conditioners and so on than there was 40 years ago. In fact, there have been two or three generations of chemicals, and we're going through another generation of refrigerants right now. And it doesn't even show up in the price of products. It doesn't show up in, in the way they work. And the same thing could be true, is true, about the innovations we need to solve climate change. It turns out that electric cars work really well. Uh, you see this in electricity, too. Most people don't know where their electricity comes from. But the cheapest sources of electricity now are renewables. And the most expensive thing to do would be to build a new coal plant. Uh, it just isn't happening anymore. But it's not enough to rely on the markets alone. You need our government to step in. The reason we have a Clean Air Act is that the marketplace doesn't take note of the health damage and the environmental damage that air pollutants cause. You need to have limits, pollution standards, phase downs of these chemicals uh, in order to make the marketplace work properly to innovate and, and uh, replace them with safer alternatives. We know that can work. The other thing I'd say is the best time to have dealt with climate change would be about 40 years ago, but the second best time is now. And people are now seeing the impacts, the percentage of people who get it, that the climate change problem is real, it's caused by carbon pollution and by industrial chemicals like CFCs and HFCs. They get it and the support for pollution control measures is very, very high. I think that we're on the cusp, once we get through the current administration, of a renewed attack on uh, the pollution that's driving climate change. David Doniger is the Senior Strategic Director for the Climate and Clean Energy Program at the National Resource Defense Council. 